All right. Good morning, everyone. I am eager to jump into Mark chapter 7 with you this morning and look at what Jesus has to say to us. But I thought we could start out with something a little bit more relaxing this morning. I got a question for you. What do you like to do on your day off? What do you like to do on your day off? Now, I know it's Sunday, and some of you say, this is my day off, and I'm here. So, you know, you like to go to church. We could start there. I know some people really like to be busy on their day off. They like to get everything on their list done, outside, inside, chores, tasks, emails. And then there's others who really don't want to do anything on their day off. They just want to sit and move as little as possible. And a lot of times those people marry, don't they? So you may have one of those in your house. I know there's older folks in this room today, some retirees who say, you know, I do whatever I want, whenever I want, however I want, right? And all the power to you. That's great. But some of the things I like to do on my day off to relax, I like to, uh, to sleep in a little bit. It's not as late as some days I wish it could be, but I do like to sleep in. And I'm known to take a nap or two on my day off as well. Uh, I do like to do some hobbies on my day off. You'll oftentimes find me in my garage on, on a Saturday. Um, I have three little boys, so they take up a lot of my time on my day off as well. We try to get some family things in. But one thing that I love to do on my day off, and I try to most weeks, is I'll make a big pot of coffee and I'll get my mug, maybe preferably my Renew mug, uh, if I have it at home, and uh, I'll make a, a pot of coffee, I'll get a cup of coffee, and I just like to catch up on what's going on in the world. You know, there's some uh, YouTube channels I like to follow. Uh, there's some news sites I'll go to to get some information, just keep up with what's happening in our world. And lately, uh, I've been seeing a trend increasing as I've been watching news and going on social media. And maybe it's a trend that you've seen increasing too. It seems like we can't go a week these days without reading about another scandal or another controversy involving the church. Now, I'm not talking about scandals and controversies in the government, we know those happen, or scandals and controversies in Hollywood, we know those happen, or out in business. I'm talking about scandals in the church. We have a problem in the church today. And if you're on news sites or you're on social media, you see evidence of it all the time. Who in here would be shocked if you were to see a story like this in your newsfeed, IRS finds church board covered up corruption for years. None of us would be surprised if we saw a generic story like that somewhere online. We're not surprised anymore. Or how about another story? Church worship leader charged with tax fraud. Did you hear about Gabe? It's real bad. Um, no, <laughs> just kidding. Ministry leaders sue church for eviction threat. Associate pastor fired for multiple affairs. Longtime deacon accused of illicit behavior. Church leaders named as co-conspirators in ongoing scandal. The truth is, stories like this are all over our world today. You don't have to go across the world or across the state to find things like this. In fact, these kinds of things happen in every church and there are examples of this in any church, including this one. 
No wonder we hear those six words from people often, the church is full of hypocrites. And sometimes when I hear those words or I hear a sentiment like that, the first thing that comes to my mind is you're not wrong. It is a problem in the church. So how do we make sense of the hypocrisy that we see all around us in our world in the church? How do we make sense of hypocrisy when we encounter it in the church or when we see it or when someone reports it to us? How should we think about that? What does Jesus teach us about hypocrisy? That's what we're going to look at today. Mark chapter 7, verses 1 to 23. We're going to talk about hypocrisy. They honor me with their lips, Jesus says. Would you pray with me as we jump into our text this morning? Father, we come to you as the fountain of everything that's good. We come to you asking for your help this morning as we open your word. You teach us through your word. You show us things through your word. You take us from where we are to where you want us to be through your word. And so may we humble ourselves before it, open our hearts and open our eyes and open our minds to receive what you have to say this morning, not what this man has to say. And God, would you shape us this morning through the power of the Spirit into more likeness of Christ. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. So we are at a very exciting point in the book of Mark. In fact, we saw just recently some of the biggest miracles that the book of Mark has to offer. Last Sunday, you remember, we looked at Jesus walking on the water. So we're at like peak Jesus's ministry right now in the book. And chapter seven, where it starts, leaves us with a very familiar setting to us at this point in the book of Mark. We have Jesus who begins to attract the attention of, once again, the scribes and the Pharisees. Uh, We've seen this many times before, and we'll continue to see it in Mark. It's a very predictable pattern. So Jesus is going to encounter the scribes and the Pharisees, and what we're going to see is also something we've seen many times before, and we'll see again, they're going to clash. And so our first section today is going to be verses one through five. We'll call this section, the scribes and Pharisees question Jesus. The word of God says this in Mark chapter seven, verse one. Now, when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. Verse five, and the Pharisees and scribes asked him, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands. So we get here in the first five verses of Mark chapter seven, the clash between Jesus and the scribes and the Pharisees. And this time the clash is about something we might not expect, defiled hands. What's Mark talking about here? Well, he's not talking about hands that are just dirty. I know I have some moms in the room that say, hey, I kind of side with the Pharisees on that one. Uh, I might be a Pharisee in that regard. It's not what he's talking about. 
Mark is alluding to something much more significant, and uh, it's to our advantage in this case that Mark is written, the Gospel of Mark, written to a Gentile audience, primarily not Jewish. Most of us could use a little refresher course on what exactly these ceremonial traditions are, and Mark provides that for his readers and for us in verses three and four. So there's a few things will help us to understand what is going on here from verses three and four. The first thing when it comes to ceremonial traditions is that the scribes and the Pharisees were the ones that upheld these traditions that were about ceremonially cleaning yourself before certain activities. Now, why did they do this? It wasn't just to get the dirt off. What they were doing when they ceremonially cleansed themselves is that they were symbolically, ceremonially saying to God that all of those things out there that could possibly defile us, some of you are familiar with some of these things from the Old Testament, different diseases, different people, different foods. If we've come in contact unintentionally with any of those things as we're out and about, we want to, before God, wash ourselves clean so he knows where our heart is. Now, this practice was actually rooted in the Old Testament. You can read in Exodus 30, verse 19, a time where Moses prescribes to the priests before they enter the tabernacle, they are to ceremonially wash their hands. But what the scribes and the Pharisees did is they expanded that tradition. So now it included not just the priests, but all Jews. And not just before they walked into the tabernacle, there was ceremonial cleansing to be done before all kinds of activities. We read about some of them in verses three and four. Before they eat, after they went to the market, their pots, their vessels, their dining couches. Other texts will reveal they also had to do this before praying. There was a whole system built up by the scribes and the Pharisees. And even the method was prescribed. So In this text, there's language that says they had to wash their fist. The the Pharisees preserved and guarded a method of cleansing where you would make a clenched fist and dip it into water or sometimes pour water over the hand. The, The key being that water could flow over every part of the hand so that before God, our hand is totally clean. So notice again now the question that they ask and notice specifically who they address the question to. Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? Jesus is not enforcing among his followers these traditions. And that's bothering the Pharisees and the scribes. And they don't take it up with the disciples, right? They attack the leader. They attack Jesus's own character So how will Jesus respond? That takes us to our second section in verses six to 13. We're gonna find that Jesus confronts their approach to God. So Jesus does here in his response much more than just answer the question of the Pharisees. He's going to dismantle their entire approach to God. He says this in verse six. He said to them, well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites. As it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. What Jesus does here is he quotes the Old Testament prophet Isaiah. And when he quotes Isaiah, it's Isaiah 29, 13, he takes a passage that Isaiah originally prophesied to the nation of Israel 
and he applies it specifically to the acts of the scribes and the Pharisees. They honor me with their lips. The words that they're saying are just right. Really well scripted, very carefully guarded. In fact, if you were to uh, eavesdrop on some scribes and Pharisees, you might say, wow, these guys are super spiritual. They really know God. But what Isaiah prophesied and what Jesus accuses the scribes and the Pharisees of is that their heart is far from God. There is no real relationship with God. Before Jesus quoted Isaiah, he called this group of men a name, and you probably caught it. He called them hypocrites. Hypocrites literally means actor or pretender. And that's exactly what a hypocrite is, isn't it? Saying the right words, going through the right motions, but having no real relationship with God. I'm, uh, I'm going through ordination prep right now, so I have, to, I have to write some theological statements and then I get to defend them in front of some people, yippee. I'm working on that these days. Uh, but in addition to the theological statements, also most ordinations include uh, some bio as well. So I'm writing a little bit of my own story, just my upbringing and my calling to ministry and also some of my early experiences and education, all those kinds of things. And what that experience over the last couple months has given me the opportunity to do is to deeply reflect on the story of my life. I was raised in a pastor's home, but I didn't always have a real relationship with God. And going through this process for ordination has reminded me how many times in my life, sometimes for seasons of my life, that I would say the right words, I'd go through the right motions, but there wasn't much of a real relationship with God at all. In fact, uh, one of the little stories I tell in my, my paper is of two friends that God brought into my life at the same time. And they had this sort of equal but different effect on my life. One of them really pushed me in my understanding of what God has revealed about himself. So how well do I know scripture? How well do I know what God has said about who I am and who he is? And then the other friend was really pushing me on the action side of my faith. So you say you're a believer, you say you're a pastor's kid, I've never seen you serve at all anywhere. And those two guys in my life, their names were, were Chris and Nate, I thank God for them. I don't know if they would have come into my life, would I even be where I am today? It's so easy as Christians to say the right words, do the right motions, but have no real relationship with God. After Jesus quotes Isaiah to the scribes and Pharisees, he levels his own prophetic indictment against them in verse eight. Listen to what he says. You leave the commandment of God and you hold to the tradition of men. The commandment of God, eh, not that important. I'm gonna hold dearly to the traditions that I've received. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. And then Jesus provides us with an example 
of the kind of thing that was going on. So he starts this in verse nine. He said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandments of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, Exodus 20, 12, honor your father and your mother. And Exodus 21, 17, whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or mother, whatever you would have gained from me is Corban, that is given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or his mother. So in these verses, Jesus accuses the scribes and the Pharisees of the same indictment he just leveled. You ignore the commandments of God and you hold dearly to the traditions of men. And then he gives us an example of what he's talking about. He talks about this practice of Corbin. What is this? So a little Old Testament background work can help us here understand what's going on. First of all, Corbin is a Hebrew word that literally means given to God. And the practice of Corbin was you could make a vow giving something that you possessed to God. So for instance, I could vow this mug as Corbin and say, this is going to be given to God. Now the catch with vowing Corbin in the first century was that while you could vow something as being given to God, it was a future commitment. So in the meantime, you could still use the cup, you could serve with the cup, you could keep it in your possession. What you were vowing is that I'm gonna use this thing, but one day I'm committing to give this to God or to sell it and give the proceeds to God. And it was the Pharisees and the scribes who strictly enforced vows like that. Uh, now they did this because in texts like Leviticus 30, uh, verses one and two, we see how seriously God takes vows. And so the Pharisees in their book, if you make a vow, there is no going back on it. So what's the problem with that? Well, let me put you in a little bit of a scenario. So um, I want you to imagine that uh, you own a beach home, okay? Isn't that a great thought? You own a beach house. And, uh, and I want you to imagine that it's the first century. I'm not sure how many people had beach houses in the first century, but we're gonna go with it anyhow. Uh, so you have a, a beach house, you're living in the first century and you decide we're going to give this beach house, we're going to vow this beach house as Corbin. We are going to dedicate this to God. Now we're still gonna use it. We're gonna vacation here, maybe rent it out, whatever. But in, in the meantime, we're gonna, lit, we're gonna, uh, we're gonna uh, use it, but we're gonna give this to God. It is one day going to be his. And you're at your beach house one night and uh, you get a knock on the door and it's your parents. And they show up, they, they look real rough uh, and they say to you, hey, you know, we hate to, to be here, but we're, we're in real trouble. Uh, we're out of money. Both of our health is totally gone. We don't know where to turn, but we can't afford our medical treatments anymore. So if you're in that scenario, are you able to sell that asset, that beach house to provide a need for your parents? Well, according to the Pharisees, no, you're not. And so imagine the result of that. Your parents leave the house, they walk back down the sidewalk and they're off to fend for themselves. And then you kick it back in your beach house and go on with your life, right? Is that the spirit of the Old Testament law? It's not. And, and that's why Jesus says that Moses says, you are to honor your parents, but then Jesus says, you say, don't you ever break a vow under any, any, under any circumstances. 
And the result that we're left with, Jesus encapsulates in verse 13, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. And many such things you do. Corbin was just one of many examples that would have come to Jesus' mind of the scribes and the Pharisees ignoring the commands of God, but holding really fast to the traditions of men. So we have in Mark chapter seven, a situation that started with the Pharisees and the scribes noticing the disciples weren't washing their hands just right. But it has now evolved into a situation where Jesus is fundamentally attacking the Pharisees and the scribes' entire approach to God. You see, they had set themselves up as the religious authorities of the people. Uh, They had set themselves up as spiritual giants that would disseminate wisdom to the masses. They had set themselves up as the, the, the definers of what the will of God is for people's lives. But Jesus exposes them for what they really are. They're hypocrites. They acted one way and they lived another way. Man, it's a good thing you and me don't struggle with that, isn't it? (laughs) They acted one way. They lived another way. We see it with the scribes and the Pharisees, no doubt. In fact, Jesus refers to them as hypocrites dozens of times in the gospels. We see it in the news stories, churches out there. But before we're too hard on everyone else, let's be real in this room for a minute. Hypocrisy is also a problem with us. It's really, really easy to point a finger and and show when other people are not living out what they say very easy for us to also honor God with our lips, but have our heart far from him. There are times when each of us is more concerned with the kinds of questions that dominate the mind of a hypocrite. How do I look? How am I perceived? What do I have to do to keep up appearances? Now, For most of us, our hypocrisy isn't a big enough deal to make the news. You know, we're not famous enough. uh, Our stories aren't juicy enough. We don't have enough money, whatever it is. The things that we do that are hypocritical are not gonna make the headlines. But what if they did? What if your private sins of hypocrisy were made public? They would be just as ugly as those ones you see online, wouldn't they? I took the liberty of uh, creating a few headlines. Husband makes sure he's in his seat on Sunday, but curses out wife on way home. You're never gonna read that in the news, I know, but that happens all the time. Father says lengthy prayer before meal, but gossips about children all night. Teen keeps Bible app on home screen, but ignores God's wisdom for dating. Man attacks pastor's sermon at dinner, then scrolls Instagram for sexual images. Mom raises hands in worship service and slanders worship leader at lunch. Couple gives exactly 10% of income to church, but ignores neighbor's need. 
Our sins aren't gonna make the headlines. They're not gonna make the news. But there's plenty of hypocrisy to go around, isn't there? Plenty of hypocrisy right here. There's plenty of times when we leave God's commands and we hold to the traditions of men. Plenty of times where we act one way publicly, but live a whole different way privately. Times where we care about how we look much more than who we are. Times where we act close to God. And that's what hypocrisy is. The timeless trap of acting close to God. Now I call it a a timeless trap because if you remember, this was a problem that Isaiah quoted to Israelites hundreds of years before Jesus was around. It was a problem for ancient Israel. It was also a problem in Jesus's day. And it's been a problem ever since, right? To this very day, hypocrisy is here. It's not just something that the scribes and the Pharisees can fall into, not just something that those with a big enough platform to make the news can fall into. So is it possible there are parts of your life where you are acting close to God, but your heart is far from him? Is it possible there are parts of your life where you're ignoring the commands of God, but you're holding fast to the traditions The second part of our text is gonna give us what Jesus teaches us about hypocrisy. Are you ready to hear what Jesus has to say about this? Verses 14 and 15, Jesus teaches the crowd with a parable. So he says this, he called the people to him and said to them, hear me, all of you, and understand. There's nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. Now, once again, we know the original context here. The disciples were washing their hands, not washing their hands before they eat. And the concern was that they're gonna be defiled. What Jesus says in the first part of this parable is don't really worry about those things outside of you that can defile you. What he tells us in the second part pushes us into some much more uncomfortable territory. It's the things inside us that defile us. Now, this was a problem for the the scribes and Pharisees. Their focus was wrong. The scribes and the Pharisees, they always focused on the outside. So for the scribes and the Pharisees, their great concern was, I I don't want to get defiled. I wanna make sure I keep the law perfectly so I can stay pure. The last thing I want is to get any defilement on me. What Jesus tells them in this parable is that it's far worse than they think. They shouldn't be worried about getting defiled. They are defiled. Their focus was wrong. They focused on the outside because their assumption was wrong. They assumed they were good and that they could stay that way. But Jesus unveils this dirty little secret in Mark chapter seven, that the problem with our world isn't just out there. It's in here. 
Now, evidently, this is a, a point when the crowd dispersed. The Pharisees must have gone back to where they came from because where the text picks up next in verses 17 to 23, it's just Jesus and his disciples. He explains the parable to them. So we read this in verse 17. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked about the parable. So very private setting here, just Jesus and his disciples. And they ask him, what did you mean by that parable? Here's what he says. (laughs) Then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him since it enters not his heart, but his stomach and is expelled? So we get a nice little anatomy lesson from Jesus there. And then we get a little note from Mark next. Thus, he declared all foods clean. Mark includes this because it would have been very relevant to his readers reading later than these events. Remember all those debates about what's clean and what's not? What can we eat in the early church? This teaching of Jesus weighed in on that. But then Jesus reiterates his point in verse 20. He said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within... From within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts. Sexual immorality, really any kind of sexual sin. Theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, literally the evil eye of jealousy, slander, pride, foolishness, all these evil things come from within and they defile a person. What Jesus says is that our real problem is inside us. And he gives here not an exhaustive list, but a bunch of examples of the kinds of things that come out of us. The first six in the original are in the plural. They refer to repeatable acts. The second six are in the singular. They refer more to character traits. Jesus' point here, the problem with our world isn't just out there. It's in here. It's the things that you do and it's the character that you have. This would have been a problem for the Pharisees. Just like hypocrites, they assumed they were good. And then they made sure to always look the part. Once again, good thing we never do that, right? Good thing nobody in here has ever tried to put their best foot forward when they're falling apart in the background. Good thing we don't care deeply about what our friends and neighbors think about the kind of person we are, more sometimes than the kind of person we really are. Many, many Christians struggle with trying to always look the part. It's a tough way to live. When we always have to look the part, our mind once again gets dominated by all of the questions that are on the minds of Pharisees. How can I appear to have it all together? How can I cover up my tracks when I fail? What if people knew the real me? Jesus gives here some tough news to the Pharisees and in the immediate context here, he gives some tough news to the disciples. But that's not where Jesus ends it, is it? 
Thanks be to God that he made a way for us through Christ to deal with the inside problem. And it's not by honoring God with our lips and making sure we always appear that we have it together. The way we deal with our inside problem is by admitting we don't have it all together and we need Christ. It's again something the Pharisees just could not say, but it is a fatal blow to hypocrisy. I'm not good. That's why I need Christ. I'm not a good person. That's why I needed Jesus in the first place. That's why I still need him. In fact, when, uh, when people will say those six words to me, the church is full of hypocrites, or at least, you know, intimate that kind of thing to me. One of the things I'll often remind them of beyond, I, I know there's hypocrisy in the church. I'll remind them that the church is one of the few places on the planet where everybody who joins it raises their hand and publicly says, I am wrong. I am a sinner. I am not good. I can't get to heaven on my own. I need Christ. That is how you become a Christian. So the fact that there are hypocrites in the church shouldn't surprise us. Every kind of sin is represented in the church. That's who we are. We're defiled people who have been made clean by Christ. It's a simple message, what we call the good news, the gospel. If you want to read about it in long form, I'll point you to where I often point people, Romans 1.18 to Romans 3.26. It's about two and a half chapters there where Paul unpacks this really simple idea. I am not good. That's why I need Christ. Let me read you how Paul concludes that section. He says this in Romans 3, 23 and 24. For everyone has sinned. We all fall short of God's glorious standard. Yet God in his grace freely makes us right in his sight. He did this through Christ Jesus when he freed us from the penalty of our sins. And all God's people said, ah, ah. I don't have to be perfect. I don't have to act like I have it all together all the time. That's why I needed Christ. When I was in seminary, I, uh, I got invited over to one of my teacher's homes. Um, they maybe invited 15 of us or so over. And uh, my wife and I went over together and uh, he, had, he had invited another guest, this guy named Tim Brindle. Um, Tim Brindle was a hip hop artist who had moved out from Pittsburgh, I think, and um, had gotten saved in the last couple of years and actually was at seminary. I believe he's a pastor in Philadelphia area now. Uh, but he was a hip hop artist and, um, and he, at the time he was using his music to just reach out and do evangelism and, and you know, some songs were, were on, uh, online and things like that back whatever we did in 2012. Um, and so anyhow, uh, one of the songs that he performed and he, he brought his boombox right into the living room there and he was, he was uh, you know, doing these songs for us. One of the songs he had was a song called I'm the Problem. I'm gonna ask the guys in the back to give me a beat right now and I'm just gonna, no, I'm just kidding. I'm not gonna do that. Um, but I am going to read you the lyrics of this song. Listen to what he says. Instead of making excuses and blaming when you sin, face it. The truth is, say, I'm the problem. My heart's sick as a leper. My biggest dilemma is my sin is the center of me. 
I'm the problem. And then in verse three, I think it's a different artist that kicks in. If I'm the problem, Christ is the solution. Praise be to God for his priceless substitution. The mountain is steep indeed, we can't climb it, but God decided to meet our deepest need. Romans 3, 24 again. God in his grace freely makes us right in his sight through Christ Jesus. I'm not good. That's why I need Christ. Now, Mark chapter seven is an awesome text and challenging in many ways. Many of you know that um, what we call the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they'll often share the same story. And in Luke's account of this same chapter, Luke gives us a little phrase uh, in the same context to the same group of people that most of you are gonna be familiar with. Listen to what Luke says in Luke eleven thirty nine. Now, you Pharisees, clean, cleanse the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. The Pharisees made sure that the outside always looked great but the inside was in deep trouble. So as we close today, I wanna give you what we'll call the the mug principle. Three practices for making sure that you clean out the inside you. So I lived single for a a couple years before I got married. And uh, boy, there were some dirty dishes in that apartment back then. Uh, sometimes I would look at something in there and think maybe I should call National Geographic for what I've seen in here. Um, so I know firsthand that when a cup is very dirty, the first thing you have to do is soak it. You gotta face reality when you're intent to clean the inside you. You have to admit my cup is defiled. It's bad. You have to confess what the Pharisees couldn't confess. Confess You are defiled. I love the little story in Luke 18, another very familiar story Jesus told about the tax collector and the Pharisee, the Pharisee who was praying in public and looking over at the tax collector saying, God, thank you that I'm not as bad as that guy. And then the tax collector beating on his chest, overwhelmed by the mercy that he had from God. We want to be like the tax collector. We want to be able to recognize, not that, man, I'm not a sinner and I'm glad I'm not that. We want to be able to recognize, I know how bad I am. And that's why I confess it to God. Second practice, got to scrub the inside. Pretty obvious. Got to scrub the inside. The Pharisees, they always focused on the outside of the cup. Is everything polished? Is everything clean? Have I kept up my reputation? Would people that don't know me very well say that I'm a spiritual person while the people that know me best know the truth? The Pharisees cared about the outside. What we wanna do is think about the inside. Now, the bad news is we can't clean the inside of our own cup. But the good news is we can ask God to cleanse the inside us. I wrote here 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 
Another passage you could write down would be Psalm 51. Great Psalm. It talks about the same idea. Some of us in this room, we have to ask God positionally to cleanse us. Some here, maybe watching online, we don't have a relationship with God at all. My encouragement to you would be to, before God, admit that you're defiled. And in the spirit of 1 John, confess your sins and ask God to cleanse the inside of you. For those of us who do have a relationship with God, this is an ongoing practice, isn't it? Where we're constantly in our walk before God, confessing our sin and asking God to cleanse us from within. It's not something we can do, which is why we ask God to do it. Finally, the third step is a simple one, rinsing. You wanna rinse that cup and let all that filth down the drain. Enjoy a real relationship with God. Matthew 11, 28 and 29, abbreviated, come to me and I will give you, I'll give you rest for your soul. Some Christians get so used to cleaning the outside of their mug. They put so much of their attention into making sure that what they present to others is the perfect Christian man, the perfect Christian woman, the perfect Christian family. We can slip so easily into honoring God with our lips while our heart is far from him. Child of God, God loves you so much. He does not want you to live that way. When you live as a Pharisee and you're just thinking all the time about the outside while the inside is defiled, your quality of life is very low. God loves you too much to let you live your whole life that way. What this passage invites us to do is three simple things. Confess your defiled. Ask God to cleanse the inside you. And then child of God, enjoy a real relationship with God again. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your word and the fact that it is sharper than a two-edged sword. It cuts us, Lord, and divides our intents. It shows us what we need to change in our life, and I pray that that's what it's done this morning. Lord, may we be a people who constantly talks about how great Christ is, who constantly talks about how much we need him because of who we are before him. God, I thank you again for the challenge from Mark 7. Would you help us as we live this out in our lives to your glory and with the power of the spirit. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.